So a quick show of hands, how many of you identify as an eldest sibling? <laughs> Lots of you. I did this at 8 o'clock and like five people raised their hands, which completely undercut my point, which is that if I had to put money on it, and if I had done that at 8, I would have lost, but if I had to put money on it, my strong suspicion, my informed suspicion, is that churches are, uh, there is a higher percentage of eldest siblings who end up in churches than in other institutions in our world. That's certainly true in the Episcopal Church. This is kind of like an eldest siblings paradise. You've got pews in rows, you've got elaborate rubrics, we, you know, you have printed books in front of you. Like everything about this says decently and in good order. Nobody step out of line. <laughs> You know, most of you know, birth order theory is pseudoscience at best. It's kind of pop psychology that makes a kind of intuitive sense, right? The, the theory is that eldest born, first born, are more conscientious, more socially dominant, less agreeable, and less open to new ideas than the later born. All of this is stemming from the work of Alfred Adler. He was a 19th century Austrian psychologist. He hung out with Freud and with Jung and postulated that firstborns experience a traumatic dethroning when a subsequent child is born into their, into their family. And that loss of primacy then has a profound effect on their later development. As with other kinds of pseudosciences, right, the idea seems that you, you, know, you find what you go looking for. I don't think it actually really says so much about birth order. Something in us, whether or not we were born first, recognizes what is going on in this story. And many of us identify more with the elder son. Certainly the Bible favors stories like this, stories about sibling rivalries. You think about the Old Testament, right? The, 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 the first story of human depravity that we've got, the murder of Abel by his brother Cain. Abel is the beloved younger brother. His offering is accepted by God for no good reason, right? Just because God happens to have a soft spot in his heart for Abel. And Cain, the eldest, is intensely jealous. He murders his brother in a fit of jealous rage. And then mythologically, right, Cain becomes the founder of cities, the originator of civilization, the developer of agriculture, and Abel is always the beloved one, the younger son for whom the fatted calf is always killed. So on, right? Throughout Genesis, you've got Abraham's two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. You've got Isaac's two sons, Jacob and Esau. The younger one steals the inheritance from the older one. It's not restricted to men. Laban's got two daughters, Leah and Rachel. Rachel's the younger one. She's the beautiful one. She's the favored one. My heart always goes out for poor Leah. I mean, <laughs> what, what did Leah do <laughs> to deserve such a miserable fate? The eldest is always the more responsible, the better equipped, the natural leader, and over and over again in Hebrew scripture, it's the youngest sibling who gets the fatted calf, and generations of family dysfunction ensues. <laughs> so any good Jewish listener knows exactly what Jesus is up to when he begins this famous story, there was a man who had two sons. That's the Jewish version of once upon a time. <laughs> Jesus is telling the story to a, good, a, group, a group of good Jewish listeners, right? It's the Pharisees and the, and the scribes, his famous detractors. They're upset because he's hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. Generations of subsequent Christian interpreters have understood tax collectors and sinners to mean the fun people. And especially in progressive Christian, we're like, oh yeah, I, I want to be with the tax collectors and sinners. But that's not the way that that would have been heard by its original audience, right? These are not the people that go out drinking on Saturday night and are no good for church on Sunday morning. Tax collectors is actually a very specific social thing in Jesus' world. These are the corrupt ones, right? Tax collectors are suspect, if you're a Pharisee, because they're Jews who are collaborating with the occupying Roman government a government that is ultimately bent on destroying you and everything you stand for. 
So a different way of thinking about the people with whom Jesus is hanging out would be like the colonial collaborators. Or maybe to put it in our context, these are the corrupt oligarchs, right? These are not people who have claim on my sympathy. They are the truly misbegotten, the original canceled ones, the first century equivalent of Vladimir Putin's circle of mafia dons and yes men. Jesus is hanging out with guys who are financing the empire's wars on the backs of the innocent. It's like Pope Francis hanging out on Roman Abramovich's yacht. <laughs> no wonder the Pharisees are incensed. I am too. So in a world made up of older sons and younger sons, older siblings and younger siblings, this parable of Jesus has become almost like kind of a Rorschach test. Which brother gets your sympathy, right? And maybe your answer to that question says a lot about where you are in the birth order, birth order, or maybe it just says a lot about how you identify. I am a confirmed older son. I'm proud to stand for election as the president of our fan club, Older Brothers of the World, Unite. And, you know, forming clubs and organizations is what older siblings do, right? We, we get really into elaborate governance documents. That's kind of our sweet spot. So if you want to talk about bylaws for this club afterwards, come find me. We will um, we'll elect a president and, and make it all work. But read in this way, right, the center of this story, the take-home message, if you like, actually has nothing to do with the whole first part, this prodigal son, quote-unquote quote prodigal son, who goes off and spends all his money and then comes back home. All of that is a device that gets Jesus to the, what I think is the real point of the story. He's talking to tax collectors, right? He's talking to Pharisees. He's talking to the elder sons of the world. And so the story really begins when the elder son reads his father the riot act, I have been working as a slave to you. I have obeyed every order, and you have never given me so much as a young goat to party with my friends. Can you hear the pain in that remark? But then he says, when this son of yours who squandered his inheritance with prostitutes returns shamefacedly with nothing to show for it, you kill the fatted calf for him. I mean, where is the tough love? Where's actions have consequences? Where's you've made your bed now lie in it? And you know, I mean, like we can extrapolate here, right? The younger son's gonna go out and do it again. I mean, we know this, right? I'm being a little facetious, but like I have seen families ruined by overindulgent parents who set no boundaries for their children. You have too. We see this, it's a vicious cycle. This son's behavior will never change as long as there are no consequences. The younger son says essentially, you're doing my younger brother no favors by failing to hold him accountable. And he is right. The elder son is always, horribly, inevitably, right on the money. <laughs> so the father turns to him, and the word that he uses is so telling. Our translation is son, which doesn't come anywhere near capturing the nuances of this word. It's, a, it's an affectionate word. It's a word that a, a Greek-speaking father might use for like a misbehaving little boy. I mean, like kiddo would be like an equivalent, right? It's a term of endearment. My beloved one, the father says, gently scolding, you are always with me, and everything that is mine is yours. As if to say, you're exactly right. Nothing you say is wrong. The only reason that we have a fatted calf left to kill in the barn is because you've been slaving day after day to make sure that we did. When I die, it all is yours. And you are missing something really critical. He says, we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was not just, you know, lost. The father says, this brother of yours was dead. And he has come back to life. In that context, nothing else matters. A resurrection has happened. And resurrections don't happen twice. 
It's a moment for joy, not for accounting. You're exactly right, and you're entirely missing the point. The same point that Paul is making in the letter from 2 Corinthians, right? We no longer regard anybody from a human, human point of view. When that kind of change happens, the old has passed away. Something new has taken place. The stakes that we're working with, the Father says, are entirely different. There is no accountability here. There is only grace. There's no tough love. There's no sanctions. There's no consequences for bad behavior, only celebration and forgiveness. That's the radical hospitality of God put into scandalous relief. And it ought to make some of us very uncomfortable and maybe even a little bit angry. A friend of mine tells a story about teaching the story, the story of the prodigal son in a Bible story, Bible study, and watching a woman in the front row grow angrier and angrier, simmering with rage until finally she slammed her Bible shut and said, this stood up, this story isn't about forgiveness, this story is about cheap grace. <laughs> and she stormed out of the classroom in a rage. And my friend said, she got it. She's probably the only person in that Bible study who understood what this story is about, which is that there is nothing responsible or laudable about the kind of love that the Father displays in this story, and yet, this is a kind of love, a preferential option for the younger son for no good reason other than that the father has a soft spot in his heart for the ne'er-do-well. That kind of love ought to infuriate us because it is not fair. There's a wideness in God's mercy. We just sang like the wideness of a sea. That means that God is standing with open arms ready to embrace warmongers, ready to forgive tyrants and dictators, ready to immediately overlook their malfeasance and throw them a party before the words of repentance are even out of their mouths. That kind of God is scandalous. That's a God who refuses to hold people accountable for their actions. And the risk of that kind of God is that there is no such thing as justice anymore. There's only mercy. There's a wideness in God's mercy, and that wideness ought to chill us to the bone because there's a wilderness in God's mercy. Some of you know this story. It's my very favorite bulletin typo story of all time. It happened, I think, six years ago, maybe. We go through this cycle every three years. We get the story of the prodigal son on the first Sunday of Lent, and invariably, we program, as Bruce did this morning, there's a wideness in God's mercy. That year, we did not proof the bulletin sufficiently well, and what the congregation saw when they opened their bulletin was, there's a wilderness in God's mercy. <laughs> and it's the best Freudian slip I know, because I think that's what this story is about. There's a wilderness in God's mercy. God's mercy is wild. It creates this ethical wilderness where joy triumphs over consequences every time, and every resurrection, no matter how ridiculous, is celebrated, whether the resurrected one has repented or not. God's mercy is not safe, and it is not comforting, and it's a very harsh thing if you're on the other side of the mercy thing, because this is a mercy that holds not malefactors accountable, but the judgmental one. The younger son is celebrated, and the consequence of that is that the older son is lost. He's the lost son. That's actually the original title of this parable. Before we started calling it the prodigal son, the Coptic Christians know this, German-speaking Christians know this, other Christians call this the parable of the lost son. Now, at one level, that's the, that's the younger son, right? The one who goes off into living. But I think the turn in this story is, oh, there is a lost son in this parable. It's that second, it's the eldest son. It's the one who has gone storming off into the fields and will not join the party. Mercy has consequences. And not every son is found. So the hardest work of all, I think, 
is the work of those of us who are right and who know ourselves to be right. Because our rightness is the thing, often, that gets in the way of love. At least loving the way that God shows us, which is desperate and lavish and without anything held back. Maybe we're not meant to love that kind of way. I don't know. Maybe we're going to continue to hang on to our bitterness and our resentment and our cherished treasures of grudge and withholding and the sharp, glittering pain that defines us. There are only dysfunctional families in the Bible. There are only dysfunctional families down here on earth. So be it. If there's any theological principle in this story, it's that however we identify, whether we're the wastrel son who's subsisting on pig food or the older son sulking in the barn because he knows he's right, God does not wait for us to get our act together. The love and the mercy and forgiveness and grace of God is going to find us not on the other side of our dysfunction, but in the middle of it, in the places that we don't approve of finding it, in the uncomfortable and surprising and entirely inappropriate ways that God's mercy actually works in the world. God does not love us responsibly. God loves us desperately. And resurrection is possible for the older son, just as much as it is for the younger son. He, too, can be found by the father, and not once he's given up his grudge and come to the party, right? The el- if the younger son doesn't have to earn the father's mercy, neither does the older son. He doesn't have to, like, you know, get his head in the game, overcome his grudge, and be like, okay, I guess I can party, too. No, I think if there's an end to this, end to this parable, it's that the father is chasing his son into the fields. He is searching every field and furrow for his elder son, who is beloved, who is precious in his sight, who tries so hard to be good. And the curse of it is he mostly succeeds at it. And so he cannot stomach his own failure, his own inability to forgive. It fills him with anger and with shame. That son, too, is longing to be found. So I think that's where we find the father when next we look. He's out in the fields, he's out in the world. He's calling over and over again the name of every one of his beloved, angry, resentful, capable, beautiful, holy, responsible children. The the lost son of Jesus' parable is the one that cannot accept that love. And this is a father who will not rest until all of his beloved children have been called home.